You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will, get, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord and and an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. And for our New Testament reading, turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have come, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heaven, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need to know to whom and to where we've come. We think we've just come to downtown Denver. We think we've just gathered in this room surrounded by a bunch of other individuals who happen to have come to the same room on a Sunday morning. And, and for many of us, whether because of the worship that we've engaged in all our lives or despite the worship that we've engaged in all our lives, um, we show up at this room blind and completely unaware of where it is that we stand, who's called us and what you've called us to. So I pray now that by your spirit and through your word, you would open our eyes to behold the gravity of what it is that we do. The weight and the holiness and the trembling and the awe required of this thing that we do. But also the rejoicing, the, the, the festival, the, the, um, the, the, the joy that is called for in what we do. In your name we pray, amen. So last week we kicked off a six-week series to kick off this year in which we're examining and thinking together biblically about what the nature of Christian worship is. Um, Many of us have come from a variety of Christian backgrounds. A number of you in this room have come from almost no Christian background at all. Um, and, And yet we gather in this room week after week after week and we do this strange thing. And when we do this strange thing, Um, It's made even stranger by the fact that um, all across this city, in fact, all across this nation, are are a whole bunch of other churches um, doing um, weirdly dissimilar things. And if I can say that phrase very intentionally, weirdly dissimilar. And so um, there are churches in our city that if you walked in on a Sunday morning, um, what you would encounter, what you'd be up to, what you'd be doing on that Sunday morning would be very, very different than what we did in this room this Sunday morning. Um, yet we all claim the, the title of worship. And um, also coming into this room is the further challenge that, that our minds, our ways of thinking about what we're up to in this room ha- have been largely shaped and defined by um, um, a modern kind of individualistic culture, um, uh, an approach to the nature of worship um, that's been largely shaped by secular humanism and not by the history of the church, not by the Bible, um, and not by uh, what the church for centuries has believed it was up to and it was doing when it gathered for worship. And so last week we established um, what we would, I would call a geography of the world, a geography of worship, um, that God has from the very, very beginning designed the world such that at the very center of that world, at the very center of um, the way that the world is organized, is the people of God coming together in the presence of God to worship him. In other words, what we do in this room on a Sunday is not meant to be some sort of mere pragmatic support to you and your ongoing life. Um, it's not meant to be kind of three ways um, to have a better job. It's not meant to be primarily about you and some practical helps for how you should live. It's also not meant to be um, about you and your emotional satisfaction um, such that you come here because you feel emotionally satisfied on a particular Sunday. No, the, the worship of the church is about God. At the center of the universe is God. 
the, the evaluation of, of how a worship um, time for the church goes is God. The, the question that should um, dominate our thinking when we gather with the people of God on a Sunday morning is, was God pleased? Did we offer worship to him that was acceptable? Did we come into his presence, not primarily to find our own emotional needs met, not primarily to be instructed in the right ways that we should live, and not even primarily so that we would learn great theology. No, no, um, the, the question that should permeate, should dominate our thinking about what we do on a Sunday is, was God pleased? Worship is about God. It is about his glory, his honor, his beauty, his law, his grace, his gospel. It is about him. And we saw last week that this is um, hardwired into the very nature of the universe. If you remember going all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 2, that the design of the universe was, the very center of the universe was a garden, Garden that would later grow into a synagogue, or would grow into a tabernacle, which would later grow into a temple, which has now grown into a church. The center was the garden. Surrounding the garden was land, land given to Adam and Eve that they were to work that land, they were to keep that land, they were to cause that land to be fruitful, to bear fruit that could feed the nations, to bear fruit in the midst of that land um, that would produce wealth, that would produce culture, that would produce beauty, that would produce goodness. And then also in the midst of that land, they were to be fruitful and they were to multiply. Best verse in the Bible. They were to raise children that would know God, that would love God, that would journey with them into the garden to worship God and then go back and live life in the garden, and as they did that work, as they bore fruit, as they had children, um, as they worked with their hands and their minds, um, in the midst of the land, the land would expand to encompass the whole earth. See this repeated with Israel. The center of their life was Jerusalem and, 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 and most notably Mount Zion and the temple. Surrounding the temple was the land, the land given to Israel that they were to work and to keep, they were to cause it to bear fruit. And then that would lead to, um, as was promised all over the prophets, um, the, the life of Israel streaming to the nations, to the whole earth. That then, as Paul then begins to tie in what God has accomplished in Jesus, that temple, that garden is then replaced with the church. The church then becomes, the church gathered as the people of God, in the presence of God, becomes the center of all of the universe. Um, and, and that we go and we work the land surrounding the life of the church, and then we gather together, not into a building that makes up this temple, but rather the people of God knit together as living stones, as Paul will say in his letter to Ephesus, um, knit together as living stones, gathering in the presence of God. That the center of the universe is the people of God gathered together in the presence of God to love him, to know him, to worship him. So what we want to move on to now over the course of the next five weeks is how does this actually work? If God himself has instructed us, has designed the world around worship, um, he's also, as we find in the scriptures, instructed us in how we're to worship. And as we gather um, in his presence, he's told us what we're supposed to do when we gather and how we gather. 
Um, I want to use, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 12, um, in particular the text that we look at, to overcome first before we get into the um, kind of the order of the liturgy and then focusing particularly on the call to worship. I want to think together about a couple of errors that we make, that we often make as Christians, um, that many of us made even this morning when we gathered. Um, that there is this kind of assumption that um, what we find in the Old Testament, what we find in the Old Covenant was kind of like graduate level worship. And that what you find in the New Covenant is kind of remedial worship. So they did it back then, it had all this ornamentation around it, it had all this ceremony around it, it had all this precision around it, um, but we here in the New Covenant following Jesus don't need all of that precision, don't need all of that care, don't need all of that process. Um, we just, God just is happy to get anything out of us that he can. Um, that that's kind of the nature of New Testament worship. What that then leads to is a couple of, a couple of different things um, as our worship becomes less shaped by how God has instructed us to worship him in the scriptures and more shaped by the culture around us. And then the first one is, um, is a kind of breezy, I like that word, authentic casualness. So we gather in worship. It's on like every church website planted since the 90s. It's a big deal in the 90s. Come as you are. Have you seen that on our website? Just however you are, just show up. PJs, show up. I said, or I think I was reminded this morning of saying that I said at one point you can come to church in your PJs or not. Um, don't come in your PJs unless you need to. Like, just show up. So there's kind of a casualness. There's no awareness that you're actually standing in the presence of of the holy God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, that the image of this God in Revelation 4 is not someone you just casually kind of waltz in and say, hey, buddy, how's it going? Here to worship you. What up? Like, that's not the way that we approach God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is glorious. And yet we live in an age in which um, in order for us to be authentic, and, and, and authenticity is the, the measure of all things in our day, um, we have to be breezy. We, have, we cannot be formal. They can't be pre-planned prayers and a pre-planned, pre-planned process. But, but listen to the author of Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So temptation is to read those three verses and think, no, you haven't come to that, that terrifying image. What you've come to is something much less than that. That's not what the author of Hebrews does. You'd expect him to turn there and say, oh, you haven't come to something that's terrifying. You've come to something that's light and breezy and authentic and chummy. That's not what he says. Listen. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal 
gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The the difference is not that the old covenant um, involved approaching something that was heavy and weighty and and glorious and terrifying. And and now in the new covenant, it's not as weighty. It is not as glorious um, and it's not, um, and it's not terrifying. No, in the old covenant, it was a shadow. It was a, um, it was fire. It was something that couldn't quite be described, and it was terrifying. And there was clear commands given about how you do it. In the new covenant, um, it has been revealed, and it is glorious, and it's covered and shot through with grace, such that the blood of Jesus speaks a word that's better than the word than the blood of Abel. What's the difference? The blood of Abel condemned. Blood of Christ cleanses. It redeems, but the shift is not from formality to casualness, from light, from, from, from weighty and serious to light and casual. No, it is from weighty and glorious and terrifying and condemning to weighty and glorious and beautiful and festal festive and redeeming. But it is weighty and it is glorious. And it involves coming into the presence of God. We also have been overwhelmed not just with kind of an authentic casualness, but with a myopic individualism. That you believe what you do when you worship is primarily something that you do on your own. It's th- th- what we're doing in this room is primarily kind of this individual devotional practice. There happens to be a bunch of people in the room. That's why so many churches now, kind of the, the goal has been really started in the 80s, create a dark room with lights, with everyone looking at a screen, forgetting the fact that anyone else is around them. Um, and we're just worshiping God on our own. And there happens to be other people in this room. But from the beginning, worship has been together with the covenant people in the presence of God. Um, Throughout this text in Hebrews, it is we have come. Not you on your own going to some sort of Gnostic secret Jerusalem, Mount secret Mount Zion, but we, the people of God, have gathered together in the presence of God. And then the third common error. The first two are kind of popular among evangelicalism in general. This third one is particular, pop, particularly popular among those who maybe those of us who are um, used to liturgical worship. There's a lack of a living faith. You, you can describe what's happening in the worship of the church. Um, you can describe confession of sin and pardon. You can talk about preaching of the word. You can talk about communion, but you do not believe where we are and where we stand. You don't come into the room to receive these gifts with living, vibrant faith to receive these gifts from God himself. So you hear a word of pardon, but you don't believe any of it. You just go through the motions. You, 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 you kneel on the floor to confess your sins, but you don't believe any of it. That you're actually sitting, kneeling in the presence of God, confessing your sins to God himself. 
You come to this table with bread and wine. And you, and you still think of it primarily as a religious ceremony. And not as the, the, the moment when the people of God sit down at a table to eat with the living God. God, he feeds us. So we are confused. We make the error of believing that gathering in the presence of God is a casual thing. But the most important thing is that we're authentic. But the scriptures speak of something that is still weighty and glorious and terrifying and good. We come with a myopic individualism, but the scriptures speak of a thing that we do together as a community in the presence of God. The, the, the whole joy of gathering in the presence of God um, is marked by being together. And then maybe we get that it has to be the church, has to be a community. Maybe we get the fact that God has ordered the nature of our worship, that it should be filled with reverence and awe, as the author of Hebrews says in verse 28. But we don't believe any of it. We might give mental assent. We might kind of understand the logic of worship when we gather on a Sunday. But we don't believe it. And therefore we don't receive it for all that it is. So, with that kind of established as, um, as the, the errors that we commonly make, I want to walk through really quickly and introduce to you on the actual nature of our liturgy, and then we're going to drill in and focus specifically on the call to worship. So there are, um, at the center of the worship of the people of God, and this has been true in the Old Covenant, it's true in the New Covenant, um, um, there were and are three offerings. And when God establishes worship in the tabernacle as he reestablishes it in the temple, um, and as it continues into the church, there were always three offerings, three offerings that took place in the exact same order every single time. In other words, it mattered greatly um, that these offerings were brought before God in the tabernacle and in the temple in this particular order. And so those three offerings were first a guilt offering. You see, when you go into the temple, when you step into the tabernacle, when you come into the presence of God um, with the people of God, the very first offering that would be offered in the presence of God was an acknowledgement of our guilt. So a guilt offering was brought and presented before God, and this was meant to be a cleansing of the people of God um, as they, um, such that they wouldn't simply presume to enter into the presence of God. They recognized that they were unclean. They recognized that they had sinned against him, and so they come and they bring a guilt offering before God. Second was the ascension offering. It's, um, you actually see it mostly translated as the burnt offering. Um, as the offering was placed upon the altar and burned up, um, the, the, the image there was that the animal was actually in the smoke, that the whole goal wasn't to destroy the animal. The goal was to somehow transition the animal um, so that in the animal, the people of God could ascend to the throne, the presence of God. And so now that they've had their sins forgiven, um, they now ascend into the presence of God where God speaks to them, where God instructs them, where they enjoy and know communion with God. And then the third offering, the peace offering, and this was unlike any other offering or sacrifice made in any other religion. Because in the peace offering, the people of God would then, after now they've ascended into the presence of God, would be able to sit down with this God and feast with him and eat with him. 
And the God they brought their sacrifices to, the God they brought their offerings to, the God who had forgiven their sins and invited them to ascend into his presence, would demonstrate peace with them by sharing a meal with them. So they would eat part of the offerings. Um, this was um, put there as a, um, as a demonstration that they were at peace with the God they were in covenant with. Um, every covenant that ever existed, um, it was always formed, um, agreed upon, but then the two parties forming this covenant, whether it was two kings or whether it was, um, this is why we have a big giant party with food um, after weddings, um, um, is a covenant has been formed and now we sit down to demonstrate the nature of that covenant, that we're in communion together, we're at pe- there is peace now between these two parties. Um, you sit down and you share a meal. And so of the three offerings, the third offering, the final offering, is that God, after he has um, reconnected to us, reformed, renewed the covenant that he's established with us, he sits down to eat with us. So those three offerings stand at the middle, and at the front end of that um, is the call to worship, where God himself calls his people into his presence, um, to, to come into his presence through these offerings. And it's concluded with, the benediction or the commissioning where the people of God in, in light of God meeting them, forgiving their sins, welcoming them into his presence and feeding them. They then give thanks and are sent by God into the world to bear the blessings of God for the nations I and mean, for our city and for our neighbors. And so the way that Christian worship has, has been organized is it begins with a call to worship, which we're going to talk a lot about here in a second. It moves into those three offerings um, a, a guilt offering. We, we do that here on a Sunday um, as we begin with a call to worship. We sing um, as we gather in the presence of God and then you're invited to kneel in the presence of God and confess your sins. And so the guilt offering um, happens for us um, as we confess our sins and pardon um, is declared over us. Then the ascension and the burnt offering. We, we come into the presence of God to be instructed by him, to enjoy his presence. Um, that happens as we, as the people of God, gathered in the presence of God, um, uh, confess together what we believe with the, the confession of faith, which we do most Sundays. Um, and then particularly as the word is read, as the prayers of the people are offered from this, um, from this pulpit, and the word of God is proclaimed from the text, as we then commune with God by his spirit and in his word. And then the peace offering. We come to this table, we eat bread, we drink wine as God in Jesus Christ feeds us and nourishes us. And then we end every week with a doxology. So we give thanks to God in song and then a commissioning as God sends us out into the world. This is the liturgy. This is the worship of the church. This is the center where God would be known and be worshiped. So what about this call to worship? What does it mean and how does it then teach us how to live in the midst of the world? What can we learn from the fact that God initiates in Scripture with a call to worship? Um, There is this repeated theme throughout the Bible. And we read one example of it from Isaiah 55 as a a promise of the new covenant. Uh, But you see it all the way back in the book of Exodus. Moses goes to Pharaoh um, and tells Pharaoh that, that God has said, send my people, release my people, let them come out to me and worship me. Um, the, the, the most central fact about Christian worship is this isn't something that we're pulling off. It's not something that we initiate. 
You see, God himself calls us into his presence. He calls Israel out of Egypt. He commands Israel to come to the tabernacle. He commands Israel to come to the temple. He commands Israel to come into his presence. We begin with a call to worship. I'm not as kind of me, I'm heralding you like, hey, I think this is a great idea. We should go do this stuff. No, we begin with a call to worship um, because we submit to, we listen to the fact that God himself calls to us, commands us to come to him. This is vital and central and glorious and beautiful. And I don't think you can ever explore enough the depths of that simple fact. It is God who commands our worship. Our worship is not something that kind of we have to drum up and kind of initiate um, and then see if God accepts it. No, um, we were blind and deaf and dead in our sins and God calls us by name into his presence. We were alienated from God because of our sin. We couldn't get into the garden. The very centerpiece of of what it means to be human, to gather in the presence of God, to know the glories of God, to be instructed in the law of God, to, to taste and be fed by God himself. We could not get there. And here's the worst part. We didn't want there. We wanted nothing to do with it. But God calls us to himself. God invites us into his presence. God commands us to come. Christian worship doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with a guitar. It begins with God. Whatever series of events took place for you this morning, that kind of made the decision for you finally to, to, to show up to church, Maybe last night you weren't quite sure. Then you saw how bad the Patriots were beat and you thought, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm going to go to church tomorrow. Maybe you felt a little sick, a little tired. Maybe you don't have school tomorrow. Maybe you don't have work tomorrow because of MLK Day. So you thought, I can sleep in like three days in a row, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. But then for whatever reason you decided, I can sleep in tomorrow. I'm going to go to church today. Whatever series of decisions, whatever, however kind of things played out for you that caused you to arrive in this room, on the bottom line confession of the Christian church in worship is it is God who brought you here. It's God who called you here. His grace is not merely, hey, if you can get here, I'll forgive your sins. Um, His grace is such that it pursues, it calls, it redeems, it it, it commands. As C.S. Lewis says, um, it will even drag you kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. So we begin each week not with us coming up with the idea and initiating worship in the presence of God, We begin each week with a call to worship from Scripture as God himself speaks and commands that we come and we praise him. Second thing I'd like to just draw an implication to, out out of. It's God who initiates worship. In other words, he calls the party. Um, He's inviting the people here, and therefore he gets to decide what the party's all about. Right? Right? 
if I host a dinner party, um, I, I'm responsible for the menu, I'm responsible for the order of events, which will be festive and not involve board games. Um, um, I, w- I, get to, I get to choose the drinks and the menu and the whole deal. Like, I set up the night. And so you show up, I say, hey, we're going to show up at 6 p.m., um, come to this party. Um, I've now called the party. I'm responsible for organizing the party. And you don't get to come and then tell me, hey, we're going to play uh, Ticket to Ride. That's what I think we should do at your, your party. I don't care what you want to do at my party. I don't play Ticket to Ride at my parties. We're going to have cocktails and dance music. <laughs> like house music with like the bass. The deep bass. Like, if it's my party and I organize the party, then, then I'm in charge of structuring the party. Now, if you throw me a surprise party for my birthday, um, then, then guess what? It's your party. You get to organize the party, and if you want me to play Ticket to Ride on my birthday, I will never come to your house on my birthday again. But it will be a great thing. Like, you're allowed to do that. It's something you can structure, you can set up. God's called the party. He gets to organize it. He gets to structure it. It's his. In the history of the church, um, it's called the regulative principle. It's, uh, it's intrinsic in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is um, the confession of faith that we adhere to or hold to, um, at least our elders do here at Trinity Church, um, which is to say that God has instructed us how to worship from his word. And we should worship according to his word. We shouldn't go like, that's a great suggestion. Anyone else have other suggestions? I don't know. Maybe he got it wrong. It's passe. It's kind of a big deal back in like 600 BC. We've, we've contemporized now. We're different. No, no, no. God's called the party. He organizes the party. He, he gets to decide what the purpose and the goal and how the party should be structured and organized. So God himself initiates. God himself calls us. And he tells us what to do. We should do it. Because he knows best. His parties are way better than your parties. Like, you're wanting to play Ticket to Ride. He doesn't do Ticket to Ride at his parties. There are better parties than that. And then here's the third thing. What is he calling us to? I mean, you see, if, if, you, if you look at this text in Hebrews, it, it reminds you of something that's actually mind-blowing. You see, when God calls us to worship, he's not calling us to this particular building downtown. He's not calling us um, uh, to um, merely kind of this geographical address with these people in this room. He's calling us actually to something much, much larger. But when he calls us, he calls us into, listen to this, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Sometimes, let's just be honest, we gather in this room, it doesn't feel like we're surrounded by and in the midst of innumerable angels in festal gathering. But that's what he's called us to. And not just that. 
to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we are called to worship, we're called together in the presence of God in this room. We are gathered with all of the angelic beings who've gathered for a party. And not only that, we are, we are surrounded by all of the saints, all the saints of now, um, in, in this moment, gathered together in the presence of God. And, and not just that, but, but all the saints that gone before, like all the, the, the righteous ones, the, the ones declared righteous in Jesus but now, because they've died and they've, they've ascended to the Father, um, uh, they have been made perfect. And so in this room, we are gathered with great-grandparents and grandparents and myriads and myriads and myriads of angels, all gathered in the presence of God. And most of all, we have come to Jesus Christ, whose blood is this constant reminder, speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Not the word of condemnation, which is what the blood of Abel did. The word of redemption and cleansing and forgiveness. So it is God who initiates. It's God who designs the party. And God himself calls us to this place. Um, Not merely this room, but all that we would see and believe with eyes of faith. That we'd we'd read texts like Revelation 4 and 5. Not about some far off future, but but a description of what happens every time the people of God gather together. Every time we, Trinity, gather in this room. An uncountable number of angels gathered in celebration. All the saints that have ever gone before, all the people of God from all the nations of the earth assembled together in the presence of God. And most of all, gathered to Jesus Christ himself who gives testimony, never-ending testimony. It just goes on and on and on, this word, this redeeming word, this forgiving word, this cleansing word that never, ever stops. This is what God calls us to. This is what we're doing in this room. And we make it such a small thing. Like I'm here to get instructions on, on merely maybe, maybe how to live a better life. I'm here to merely have some sort of emotional experience. Um, don't you know where we are? Do you know where we are? A couple of implications. Our God rules over his own worship. We've already talked about this. We come here to do what he says. We we barely know where we are, let alone what we should do when we're here. And so we should listen to him. We should see how worship is ordered in the scriptures. Talked about last week, like God is never lackadaisical or loose on what worship can be. He tells us what we are to do in his presence and how we're out to do, how we ought to do it. In the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God kills people who presume upon him in his presence. Second, God initiates our worship. He wants you to be here. 
I think one of the greatest human desires, dominating desires for humanity, for us as individuals, is the desire to be wanted, to be invited. Like, do you remember, maybe it was just me, the junior high party that you weren't invited to? Like, little Susie had a birthday party and you didn't get an invitation. So stop and consider how much better God wants you here. He wants you in his presence. That's glorious. Third, it struck me, I was watching a, some show, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was Netflix. And they were talking a ton about family and what is family and how, does, um, how, do, how should we understand family. It was this whole reinvention of the nature of family. And it dawned on me that um, on this show, and I think it's pervasive in our culture, um, family is defined by kind of um, in our current culture as family is the people who will call you by whatever name you want to be called. Um, they will affirm whatever identity you choose to take on. That's family in our current culture. Um, family in, in Scripture, the, the church as family, it's made up of those who receive the name that God calls us. You see, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to belong to the family of God, the family of Abraham, it is not that we kind of make up our name on our own. No, it's the exact opposite of the, the, the direction our culture moves. Our, our culture, culture says, hey, what do you want to be called? What's your authentic name? What's your authentic identity? Well, I choose this. And then, um, and then we call love and support and family, those who will affirm that, those who will just bless that, whatever that is, no matter how crazy that is. Like Derek comes and says, I'm going to play in the NBA. Family says, no. <laughs> brother, <laughs> you're not quite tall enough, but I can see it. I affirm that. NBA player. That's not how it works in the scriptures. How it works in the scriptures is that God calls us by a, a name that he gives us. In other words, he defines who we are. He defines our identity. And the people of God are those who in Jesus Christ answer that call. You see, the nature of the call to worship is it teaches us the entire posture by which we live in the midst of the world. We live as those who have been named by God. Not as those who must name themselves. In fact, there's this whole rhythm of blessing and curse in the scripture um, um, such that, that those who are cursed are those who, who don't have a name given to them. But in the call to worship, God calls us together by the name of his people. See this all through the scriptures. You see it in the book of Revelation in particular um, uh, where the, the promise given to all those who will believe in Jesus, all those who will keep themselves from the evil in the world and the culture that surrounds them is that Jesus says, I will give them a new name. So we learn that the, that the fundamental posture of how we're to live in the world, how we're to raise our children, how we're to pursue marriage, how, how do we think about what it means to love our neighbors 
is that we receive the name that God has given us and we call people to receive the name that God gives them in Jesus. One of the traditions in the life of the church, it's fallen out of, um, that was terrifying, felt like something was coming to get me. Um, it's kind of fallen out of practice in the life of the church is that you would receive your name at your baptism. It was a mark that God was giving you in your baptism, a name, the name that you would carry forever and ever and ever. This is what happens in your baptism is that you are set apart and cleansed and washed and renamed by God such that you are his. Last, what covers this name? It is Jesus. Jesus, the one who, whose blood speaks a better word. Such that your name is forgiven. Your name is redeemed. Your name is loved. Your name is man of God, woman of God. Our name is the people of God. Our name is the temple of the living God, the place where God himself dwells among us. This is the center of our worship. It begins with God, our Father, naming us. Naming us not according to our deeds. Naming us not according to our works. um, Naming us not according to our sins. But naming us in and through and because of the blood of Jesus. You have in Jesus Christ received a new name. And so I command you today, hear the call of God. Believe the call of God and come. Let's pray. So Father, what a thing. You've called us not only here in your presence, you've also called us to this table. You've called us to sit with you, to be fed by you, to eat with you. There is no other God like you. A God who forgives the sins of his people. A God who welcomes us hospitably into his presence. A God who then sits with us, instructs us in how to live wisely and well and faithfully and righteously in the world. And then, supremely maybe, a God who then feeds us, sits with us and nourishes us and gives us life. And so, Father, we come. We come now to eat the bread and the wine that you've provided in the body and the blood of Jesus. May we eat as those who've received and believe the name that you've given us. In your name we pray, amen.